Yeah, that's uh, fine. Does yeah. that work for you, right? Because then you're just gonna take it and edit. We just we just we just keep going. Yeah, yeah. So yeah absolutely fine. cool. And then I'll just well, take all of it. Stand by then. Okay. Thanks. I got it. All right, yeah, we're rolling. You guys can go. Ahead. Oh, it Thanks. started. Okay, great. <sighs> we haven't done this in a while. Mm. This is fun. Here we go. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha from L.A. Hello! Except that today she's not in L.A., she's right across from me, here in New York, for the U.S. Open. Yes, and for the U.S. Open. And for September visit. It's been really good. How's the open? Mm. Not that open. <laughs> oh, Trish is a huge Roger Federer fan, and apparently he's losing. What a, I don't, I, I don't know what that means. It's like. just so clear you don't, because he is losing. He has lost. He's lost. Oh. It's all right. It's done. It's done. It's too late for him now. It's done, and I have tickets for the um, for the semifinals on Friday, and I'm trying to sell them. That's oh, how boy. lame I am. Okay. But I think I'm gonna stick around. You know, I gotta suck it up. And watch the uh, the Vanquisher of Federer, <laughs> and eat eat your broccoli. Like if you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. But I paid two hundred bucks for this. Well, shit. then watch it. <laughs> then you are definitely watching it. Uh, uh, welcome back, by the way. We haven't done this in a long, long time, listeners. We know that you are out there. We know that you uh, were waiting for us to come back. Well, now we're back, and uh, everything went to shit while we were away. Mm. Uh, so the entire the entire world is different. Uh, uh, congratulations to everyone. America is finally um, great. So <laughs> Very great. We've, we've gotten to where we thought we could go. We we made it through the rain. We did it. Uh, fantastic. So what else is up with you? What how's how's what's the most interesting thing you've done this summer? And I then d- while you're talking, I think of. My own answer to that question. Ah! <laughs> the most interesting thing I've done this summer. Um. Well, you know what? While I was away, I went to Wimbledon. I had an amazing time at Wimbledon. I went to London. I just wanted to put myself in the city. I had no tickets. Mm-hmm. I simply made myself available in the city. And the wonder of Twitter, Facebook, it's magical. I was able to get tickets to every single match I wanted to see and I got to see Federer win Wimbledon. So it was pretty Wait, fantastic. wait, you just went on Twitter and Facebook. It's like, hi, I need tickets. Um, I just said, I'm going to London, and people made things happen for me. It's magical. I have questions. What are uh, the questions? And no sex exchange happened. Okay. One, did you keep all your clothes on? <laughs> <laughs> so you just said, I'm going to London, and th- see, that just means people love you. Yes. Wait, strangers or people you know? I mean, I never met them face to face. Oh, they're like Twitter friends. Twitter friends. Okay. Twitter no, friends, I get that. Twitter friends, Twitter acquaintances. You know what? It was great. It was really great. It was magical. It felt magical. It was a magical week. And then afterwards, I wrote a really nice, I think it was really nice, but I'm other sure people have told me that it was good. Um, just kind of review the story because I, you know, I have another life where I write and talk about tennis. And so I have a blog. And uh, Where could people find that blog? It's solelytennistravels.com. One more time? solelytennistravels.com. So 
You know, so it was really great. It was just an amazing experience because realistically, the um, the inspiration for my tennis blog was actually Federer's loss in 2008. And I was like, you know what? Federer's lost Wimbledon. Oh, my God. Does it mean he's going to retire? I want to see him live. And that's what set me on this journey. And Full as, circle. And then you ended up back in Wimbledon. And then I ended up back in Wimbledon seeing him capture Wimbledon. It was I, amazing. To shift the topic a little bit, because we had had this conversation a couple of months ago, because you ended up in London a while back. It was yeah. right after the election. Now that time has passed, how's things over there? You know what? I will say this. Because, um, wait, because just to recap, we had a conversation it was after the election. You'd gone to London, and I had asked you if you felt like you just need to escape America, like that's where you'd go. <laughs> and you were like, no, 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 I'm very much into America. Still the same? No. I mean, what happened was... No, bags are packed. (laughs) I'm moving. This is the announcement. Let me explain to you. So after the election, of course, we were all bummed. Yeah. Unless you're a Trumper, and then in which case... Then you were like, yeah, You're just just loving life. But I was pretty bummed. And so then, actually, I was kind of too invested in the news, right? Yes. And then I went to London, and um, I was trying to do the Wimbledon thing. And so what really happened was um, I sort of got out of the news cycle... And so I wasn't able to pay attention to all the daily nightmare-ish stuff that would come out of his mm-hmm. um, his tweets. And so I would go online and I'd be like four or five hours after something had exploded. And the wonder of that is that post-Wimbledon and post-London, I'm no, I, I haven't caught up. So there's been this sort oh of my God, wonderful... Trisha, don't. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've caught up, but it's really at a distance. Like, yeah. it's receded a mm-hmm. little bit. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's been really important that, it's, that it receded. I was living with it. I was having problems sleeping. I'm not to say I don't care. Obviously, I still care. I think the issues it's are important. It's a fine line to walk, though, because, like, on one level... Yes, the daily onslaught of the horribleness of where the country is. It's a lot. But then if you take your eye off the ball, you know, you're going to miss the announcement of when, like, the cops are rounding us all up or something. I don't know. I feel like... Oh, my God. I can't believe you say that. But you know what? So many of my honey, friends tell me that. Let me tell you something. That is the it biggest is... fear. Can we admit that? Can you... Let's just admit a fear. I don't know. So... It's literally goddamn happening. Like, Well, one second, though. But the le- legitimate fear, I'll tell you, every single black friend I have mm-hmm. have a fear that they're going to wake up. And they've articulated this yes. to me out loud. And there'll be an executive order to show up at slavery camps. Yeah. Like, literally people have said that Let me tell you something. (laughs) I don't put it past it. This, uh, listen, people are escaping Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, (laughs) literally being captured and deported. Like, in the midst of trying to save their lives. People are being rounded up. That's true. It's not like a wild, distant fantasy anymore. So, but anyway, to get back to that, it's just... On one level, it's like, yeah, you have to take care of yourself. But on the other level, I don't want to be like one of those people like, oh, my God, I just can't take with the news. I just, oh, my God, I'm not really political. I don't pay attention because that privilege that smacks of – I could never be that. But I will say what what I have done is I don't follow our um, fearless leader on Twitter, but I do Uh, follow – Of course you don't. No, I don't. But I do follow this thing called POTUSBOT, which is like it transforms all of his tweets into press releases. And so it looks like an official press release on my Twitter feed. So if something really relevant is happening, I see it presented to me on my but Twitter without, feed. But without, like, the language without of an eighth all, without, grader? Well, the language is still there, but it's, like, cloudy with, like, official... Interesting. You know, it helps. It, it helps because then I'm able to sort of stay abreast, mm-hmm. but I don't get caught up in the battle. Mm-hmm. You know, it floats across my timeline. There was a... I have to say, there was a moment in time where you can actually follow a particular Twitter 
person and it would show you his feed. I was following that for about two seconds and I was like, this is ridiculous. I mean, his You were feed, following someone who was just showing you the, POTUS, the president's, the president's t- feed? Why Twitter feed. the president? No, but because I'm seeing what he sees. That's the point of it. So uh-huh. it like co- it collates like all of the things he follows, mm-hmm. and then it presents it to you on your timeline. Oh, oh, I see. So you can see what he's learning about the world. Oh no! And I was doing it for about ten minutes, and I was like, absolutely not, oh, because no. it was it was ridiculous. That's it was like crazy. too much, too much. Um, so, but yeah, this actually is really good. That bot that just gives me official presidential mm. tweets in the right language. No, I'm following the last protos. <laughs> Fun fact. And I'll tell you about my summer. Fun fact. If you type into Google, try this, everybody, if they haven't fixed it yet. If you type in Google, how old is the president? Honey, they tell you how, how old Barack Obama is. The dream world. <laughs> Barack Obama is so-and-so years old. So Ugh. shady. So what uh, about your summer? I haven't done anything interesting, I'm afraid to say. Uh, how I, is that possible as a gay man in New York? You know what's funny? As an older gay man in New York, uh, I... Totally enjoy. Here's the list: buying ice cream, oh. going home, getting into my underwear, balancing a, a bowl of chips on my chest, turning on Netflix, and just eating and crying. Usually, so what now, separates no. you from the red states? <laughs> I'm just I don't bad. blame anyone for my misfortune. That's the difference. <laughs> I no. Uh, let's see. This summer, uh, I worked on my summer camp. I run a summer camp. It went phenomenally. And uh, I quit my full-time job so I could concentrate on running that summer camp and the aforementioned Netflix watching and snack eating <laughs> and recording this podcast and sleeping in. And that's it. The, the most interesting I did, interesting thing I did this summer was really take stock of who I am and where I want to go. What does that mean? Well, exactly. You know what? I was at, I was at Columbia a couple of days ago. Um, uh, someone I know, she's a college freshman there now. Shout out to Orla. And I was like watching all like these young people run around, like starting their lives. Mm-hmm. And the most valuable thing, and I try to tell my friend this, the most valuable thing I wish I'd known when I was 17, 18, was that as you think you're starting your entire life, like this is not the be all end all. Like you are going to get a second act and a third act and a fourth act. Mm. And I just don't think we tell people that. Like, we prep kids when they're 14, 15, 16. Like, make a decision. What do you want to do for a career? That's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And, you know, I did social work for 17 years, and I like social work, and I I just wanted to close the chapter. I just wanted to close the chapter, and it feels great. It so you're feels... not going to re-enter social work? Uh, nope. I wow. think I think, you know, uh, without getting too much into my own psychology, but, like, I think if you do this kind of work, if you do social work or mental health work, the amount of trauma that you're exposed to on a daily basis, after a while you become inured to it and you don't actually think about it, how it affects you anymore. So when I sit back and think about the stories that I've had to take in and the things that I've had to do mm-hmm. and I just kind of take into stride, it's like when I now when I stop and think about it, I'm like, oh, my God, that's insane. That's like over the top. Like how am I handling that? And you that? probably shouldn't do it for that long. No. Do you think you'd be, do you think, do you think, do you think, I think social work similar to police work is something you shouldn't do long term. Like I think there's a, there should be a period in time. Well, cops, you, you retire after 20 years. Mm, Maybe they should do it to 10. (laughs) Shit, honey. (laughs) I mean, not, you know, because you you start the exposure. When you're a cop, you start at 23, you're done at 43, you know, which I think. 33. 
What, do you want 33? That's, I lobby that's for 10 saying? years. 10 years? I feel like some professions, I think it's too traumatizing. And I think it, in order for you to do it probably efficiently and well, there's a dehumanizing element to it. So yes. I think once you, once you start to feel like you are approaching um, human beings and, as less than, mm-hmm. in order for you to just deal, I think it's time for you to step out of it. Here's my... Here's my response to that, though. My devil's advocate is that it takes you a while to get good at those jobs. I know. And I would say, like, a detective, 10 years is not enough. Like, if you're after, – after your eighth year, you're thinking about retirement, it's just, you're just not going to be good at that job. Social work, I didn't get good at this strike that. Not that I didn't get good at it, America. Like, I didn't feel confident in all my abilities until, I mean, relatively recently, seven years ago. Like, and I felt like, okay, I'm excellent at this. I know exactly what I'm doing. Like, I know where to find help. It takes a while. But then it also takes a while to recognize that I think someone younger, more idealistic, with more energy, um, and more willingness to fight the system, I think they would be better off taking my place. Not that I got tired of fighting the system, but I got tired of fighting the system. The foster care system is a mess. It's been a, it's a different kind of mess than it was 20 years ago when I got into this game. Um, but it's 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 time for someone else to come along and do it. I met uh, I met some young people going to school for social work. Whenever anyone tells me I'm going to school for social work, I go, oh. <laughs> oh, wow, 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 Okay. Can, good luck, you know. Oh, that's brutal. I, it's hard work. It's hard work, and no one gets paid for it, so that's We've also, just established sucks. that some jobs might have a statute of limitations, I think. No, well, now that's rolling around in my head. Like, I think, I, I, think, I, think, I think you're right. If your job rests on interacting with people who either are experiencing trauma or are going to come at you in traumatic ways, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the type of job that you should be signing up to have for a long time. I just don't see it. I agree, and I think the way that we handle those jobs, you know, we want to process people, right? We want to process people efficiently. Yeah. We do this with grief all the time. Yep. You know, like we just want, okay, now – this is the way this is the way the process is going to work and it's going to A to B to the C and everything is very black and white everything is very calm and sedate and mechanical and corporate mm-hmm. uh, I think that's one of the problems we have with these systems yep. these systems are messy and the people in them are real people with real problems who resist handling and processing in this way and trying to create a system that pushes people through a machine I think that's not the best choice and what you're saying yeah so I think I agree with you and I think we need to just look at the way that this work gets done and who does it. Yeah. Because <laughs> because I just, you know, the, the place that I worked recently, and I told them this, you know, they had a mediocre white woman problem. I worked with a lot of black and brown children, and they kept hiring, it was like the 19th century, they kept hiring like all these white women who really meant well, who were mediocre at their jobs at best. The systematic mm-hmm. violence that continues through that hiring practice on those kids of color is just abhorrent. But you you said something that I think you need to define. Mm-hmm. What is a mediocre white woman problem? This, the mediocre white woman problem is this. And really, it's the mediocre white person problem. And we have a very mediocre person in the White House. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> maybe mediocre's giving him too much due. Uh, what I mean is that when you hire for a job, 
Mm-hmm. The most important thing isn't your effectiveness or your knowledge about the subject matter. It's about how you feel about the work that you might be doing were you to be hired. And that's the problem. I think it's a problem in a lot of the helping professions because just getting people in the door to do these professions, it's like, oh, my God, where are we going to find people who are going to teach these 33rd graders? Well, just get someone who means well. And I do not – I have never believed that there is a dearth of people who have these skills or would develop these skills if given the opportunity. I've never believed that. But yet somehow all these jobs are flooded with people who just mean well and can't really execute their jobs. Can I just suggest, though, that it's I actually... I mean, go ahead. It's not just really, I think, a helping profession issue. I mean, this is a larger question. And I, it's funny that it's we've circled around to it because I think this was something I wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. which is kind of... Oh, shit, um, we should probably get to topics. Well, I mean, I think... I mean, this is a topic. This is a topic. One of the topics that I think I wanted to explore was um, what do you act... What are people doing when they're hiring? Because I find that I've worked in plenty of spaces where... It's actually not how well you do your job. Oh no. That's important. No, 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 no. It's actually how it's actually how you make the people around you feel. So the the issue is, oh, I think I could hang out with this person for seven days, seven hours mm-hmm. um, each day. Oh, I think this person would be really cool. And this is a total this is my bias because mm-hmm. I'm I'm a bit of a bitch, but why did you advertise? You know, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm a bitch. I'm gonna say I'm a bitch because I think I'm already just I'm pre I'm preempting people okay. telling me that I'm being bitchy when mm, I say okay, this. Okay, go ahead. But when I, I, I like people who are good at their jobs, and so I would rather someone who's actually good at their job as opposed to somebody who's nice. How does that make you a bitch? Because believe me, that's rare. People will accommodate a nice person who is ineffectual at their job. And I cannot take that. No, I can't take it either. So uh, that makes me a bitch. I, I, no, so, okay, I'm, so my thing I'm, is this: so that's you show up I'm to saying. work, work, motherfucker, work. Like no, that's what see, you're here to do. But that's different. And I actually think that this is um, this is something I'm really sensitive to because I wonder about it. And I think because I really believe that work is performance. You show up, you're hired to do a task, and you do it well. And you go home. Mm-hmm. And that's how I present myself at work. And so sometimes I can appear a certain way to people. Mm-hmm. I can be like, you know, um, oh, she's kind of remote or oh, she's a bit cool. Or, but I'm really just there to do my job. Mm-hmm. But I think what, what I've realized in many work scenarios is that people are actually not there to do their jobs. They're there to hang out. They're there to soothe themselves. They're there to work through familial problems. They're there. They're there to, to occupy time and space. Yes, and, and, or they have some ego issue. And the people who hire them are they're keyed into that, right? Because they're there to occupy time and space. And I, I told you a story, you know, off mic a while back uh, yesterday about, you know, I had a job where there were two candidates. I was on the committee, two candidates. And one was very effective. She came in. She she was like, this is what I would do. I like to be busy. Da-da. And the other person came in. She's like, oh, I prayed for this job. I brought I brought cookies <laughs> and whatever. And I was like looking around like, is this working? And it did. She, the cookie lady got the job because I've she been... made everyone feel good. And I was like, but that one was going to do all the work. I, I was so confused. So I have been some – I have – I experienced that exact same thing. I saw several people gross, being gross, interviewed gross. for a position, and I looked at the resumes mm-hmm. of the three people, and the one that got the job was the one that was least qualified. 
I mean, that but happens. boy, was she fun. <laughs> and so I just <laughs> it's a challenge, though, because, I mean, as, a, as you go out and you're sort of interviewing for jobs, you start to realize that you're trying to figure out how to let them know, not so much that you're competent, but that you are just a good person to be around. And that's a weird thing. And just think about that for people of color. Think about people who, if wow. you're a person of color who's entering a space mm-hmm. where a job has less to do with your competence and more to do with how people how feel you about in. you and mm-hmm. how you fit in. I mean, think about that dynamic. No, I don't have to think about it. I live it. Exactly. Uh, I know exactly challenge. what that's it's like. A real challenge. You know, you're trying to make people, you, ugh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Anywho. But uh, I mean, whew. Any was... damn way. Well, it's nice to it's nice to do this again. Look, it we was... just jumped right in. <laughs> <laughs> we used to do this all the time. Uh, I'm so excited about starting up season two of this thing that we do. Uh, okay, let's talk about topics. Okay. So this past August in Charlottesville, Virginia, mm-hmm. there was some violence. We all we all saw it on the news. I'm not going to recap it. What interests me about this story is that um, this protest and the counter-protest sprang up around the removal of Confederate statues uh, after the whole violence in Charlottesville, there, uh, Baltimore removed several statues overnight, mm-hmm. which I thought was great. Dead um, of night. The Columbus statue near where I live in Queens was defaced. Um, and I think, and now there's discussion about Columbus Circle in New York City and what we should do with it. Um, it got me thinking about, or rather, someone posed me the question, and it got me thinking about okay, well, given that. Everything in the country is racist, given that the country is built on racist and suppressing uh, populations. There are so many monuments to the people who are, who are connected to that. Not just Confederate leaders, but also like the founding fathers of this country. Mm-hmm. How do we decide, or this is the question that was posed to me, how do we decide which monuments and statues we keep up and which ones we remove? Thomas Jefferson, while he founded the country, was also a slave owner and a rapist. Mm-hmm. So, at which, at where's the threshold for who stays up and who comes down? What do you think? You know, this is interesting for me because I, I've been contemplating that, right? Because mm-hmm. it feels like you can, it feels like everything can go, everything can stay if you if you don't decide what the parameters are. And I was listening to a really fascinating discussion on another podcast that I mm-hmm. cheat on with us. Um, <laughs> How dare you? I know. And I think I think one of the key distinctions that I, one of the um, the guests made was um, between history and heritage. And history is what happened, right? Mm-hmm. And heritage is the value and the meaning you put on what happened. Okay. And f- so for me, I think that's the tension. People are saying that taking down monuments is erasing history. But I, I actually think what people are doing is having a conversation about heritage, mm-hmm. the value of what happens. And so one of the things that I think is really noteworthy, particularly particularly the um, many of the statues that people want to take down, which I think many of them really happened um, post-Reconstruction. What was it? 1940s, actually. Mm-hmm. It was 1940s. So it was when people had decided what the Civil War was supposed to mean. Mm-hmm. Years after it ended, they decided it was going to be these monuments were going to be about the lost cause issue, right? This is what this is. This is this is the story. So then, this is really a heritage discussion. It's not a history discussion. It's a heritage discussion. No, but the people who put these monuments up, they're 
they're positive. They're positioning this as a oh, this is the history. Of no, this area. but see, but the history is a lie. This is the thing because they are the ones that are propagating this notion that um, the Civil War was really about states' rights. That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. In the explicit statement from Jefferson Davis, he says it is about slavery, and it is very much about the idea that we need to have an economy based on human chattel. It's explicitly about that. Oh so this notion, so the reinvention of the of of like a new storyline, that's the heritage piece. And that's what those statues represent. That's what they're reflecting. Mm-hmm. They're reflecting this sort of rebranding of the civil rights era. I mean of the civil war era. So to me that's where my resistance comes in. Is that you're actually not having a real historical moment. You're actually having a heritage moment. And the question is um Statues are supposed to reflect the values of your culture. The values of your oh, culture. Shit, you're taking it there. That's what I mean. You're taking and so it that's there. What it, so a statue is not just like um, history. I mean, because if a statue was history, then there'd be monuments to all manner of things. It's you like, put up a statue or you put up a mm-hmm. monument to because you think this person reflects values that are... Um, that are maybe universal, that are essential to the American ideal. How are you going to put up statues of people who sought to break the country apart and well, who were essentially... I'm going to um, state the obvious. The, that doesn't make sense to the me. The agreement on what the American ideals are doesn't exist, and this is part of the problem. I mean, there are still people, there are still white people who want to tear down Martin Luther King because he, was, uh, he cheated on his wife. Like, how can you revere the man because he cheated on his wife? And I was like, I've never seen so many apples and oranges in my entire life. Like, the value of Martin Luther King was not that he held himself up as, like, a paragon of marital fidelity. No, that's like, not Like, that's not the issue. But but that's the thing. But people who – but people key into that. And, I mean, one, I think it's, like, low-key racism and whatever. But also I think it's – I mean, the people who are Christian, that's important to them. That's important. That's, that's part of their American journey and their Christian ideals. And I mean, not that I'm advocating ripping down statues and renaming, you know, every project in America. <laughs> changing the name of every project in America. Although I'm not saying that. I'm just there is this tension between who how do we look at all of our heroes? In do we look at them in context or do we look at them acontextually? Like that's that's the tension for me. See, the tension for me is is less is is even less important than that for okay. me. Okay, it's less about whether you're heroic or not. Mm-hmm. For me, it's about what happened, and I know that for some people that strikes. Them for as, some people, that's that's debatable. That's what debatable. happened? Oh no! But it, when you have explicit documentation, because that was what was really fascinating. Um, um, this was code switch, and I just want to give you the context. It's code switch, and what was really fascinating is um, the woman. The makes, code switch podcast, the, code, which code you code should all listen podcast. to. It's yeah. great. The woman makes this distinction, and she says, "Listen, history happened whether you wanted it to or not, whether mm-hmm. you agreed with it or not, and and it's also." It's larger than your perception. There are historical documents, there are letters, there are journals. So you can actually piece together a story. You can. That in some ways lets, hello, y'all, science. Science is involved. But, you know. So you you know what I'm going to rebut to I know you can rebut to it. But I'm just saying. You know what I'm going to say when you're done. I'm saying. But Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is you can piece together and actually tell a story that in some sense there's evidence for. There's proof of. Right? 
And to me, that's something you shouldn't erase. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me because I think it's important for everybody to understand it, whether we like it or not. That's different. Evidence, proof, and facts are all on the chopping block. Oh, that's fine. But see, that's my problem with monuments. Monuments are not about that. Monuments are about values. They're about, they're about the meaning of a thing. And so that's separate. That's a separate discussion. So you can go to a museum and learn all the things you need to learn about what really happened. Mm-hmm. And you could be exposed to letters. You could be exposed to all sorts of documentation, pamphlets. I mean, the one thing we know about that era, those people certainly love to write shit. It's like the revolutionary era. You know what? They wrote their ideas down. They, they were pretty explicit nothing else about to it. Do. People wrote... Sidebar, you know what I'm shocked about? Shocked about this. Everyone has letters. Everyone wrote letters to everyone. Everyone kept them. Listen, I do too. Do you really? You I keep... have all the letters you've ever written to me. Well, okay, but there's a nostalgia There's a nostalgia aspect to that because I wrote those letters to you like 20 years ago and yeah. we simply don't write letters anymore. This is how we communicate now. So like nostalgia – but these people were just stockpiling these letters. Were they going to go back – I mean, and read them but again? But you reread letters. I mean, I've reread letters. I mean, if you think about, well, let's not get sidetracked. But, you know, so they wrote their ideas down. So it's not up for debate. So this question about Jefferson Davis, secessionist or not, um, it's pretty clear. It's, it's actually, there's like no question about it. He says what he is. And they say what they're fighting for. And they lost the war. Why are you celebrating the losers of a war that sought to tear the union apart? Unless you appreciate the cause they were fighting for. That's what you're saying. Which is fine. Unless you appreciate the cause. Which is what you're saying. They're saying this value that they were fighting for is important, so I need to make a statue about it. About it. Even though they lost. Exactly. And and so what I'm saying is don't say that you're losing history. Mm -hmm. Say you're losing the value I want to attach to this. Mm -hmm. That's different. You don't lose history. The documentations are there. The paperwork is there. You can find it in a museum. Honey, I love you know documentation I and paperwork in museums just like you, but you know, mm, you mean, know what, I, what I'm going to say. What I want to know is where, where are the Hitler statues and why can't we have one? This I'd is, like one in my neighborhood. I'm, I mean, you know, who's you, doing this? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, can this, you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if one town just decided to like, you know what? I like Hitler. I really like what he stood for. Yeah. Do you mind if I put up some statues? Do you mind if I put up his speeches? Uh, you know, in America, I mean, that would be a debate, actually. <laughs> but let me tell you that where that would not be a debate is Germany. And I had a conversation once where you know someone had asked me. This white guy had asked me, like, you know, when are we ever going to get over all this race stuff that we're doing in this country? I said. I said, it's not impossible. We could we can change this conversation. Like the difference being though, like compare us to Germany. After World War II, Auschwitz, the day after they released all those those people from Auschwitz, mm-hmm. the Americans and the German soldiers went to a nearby village. Yeah. And got the villagers and brought them to Auschwitz and gave them a tour and said, well, This is where they shaved everyone. This is where they killed them. This is what, and showed everyone this was happening in your backyard. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, we're all responsible for this. This is something that happened and we're showing you so it doesn't happen again. Germany's history since post World War II has been accepting the horribleness of what happened, yep. um, not glorifying it. In fact, they outlawed discussing it and promoting some of that stuff. Um, that's how they dealt with it. You couldn't walk to Berlin and like 
give like the Heil Hitler thing, you'd have your the shit beaten out of you. Didn't that happen to an American? That tourist did happen recently? to an American tourist. Had the shit beat out of him because they're not proud of what happened, and they they issue statements to that effect. America, on the other hand, is low key proud of their racist ideology. Yes, which because... is why you know KKK members are protected at rallies and counter protesters are seen as as violent, whatever. Like this, that's the difference between us and other countries that we're proud of this we're proud of our history when it comes to racism and keeping people down if we if america could admit the history and just if the president of the united states not this one but if the president of the united states is like you know americans we owe a great debt to the millions of people who were displaced and colonized and brutalized to build this country that we that we have and the history is it's it's not a great one. It's a shameful one. We have a choice to move forward from this, or we continue to discuss it and glorify it. And we choose to move forward. If that conversation could happen, then there'd be so much that would be different about our culture. The problem is, is that I just don't see that happening. See, my thing was, and this is something obviously because I'm I'm an, I'm Jamaican, so mm-hmm. I came to America and learned American history, and so. So I'm learning it at a distance, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not an American learning American history. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I've always thought when I, if, and particularly if you remember high school history, yeah. we spent a lot of time on the Revolutionary War and oh the Civil God, War. I never got to any know. other part. Um, I didn't even, I didn't <laughs> American know, history ends I didn't 1851. Even, I didn't even know what happened in the 1920s. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe you did the Roaring Twenties, but that's yeah. it. Never made it to the World War II, never. Um, but I think what's no, what's always been noteworthy, which is, which is noteworthy in and of itself, that American history that we need to talk about slavery and Reconstruction and yada yada yada. United Nations was built in the seventies. That's that. it. Yeah. <laughs> yada yada yada. But I think what's noteworthy about it is that I remember at the time, as somebody who was an outsider learning history, I remember thinking to myself, "Boy, the North is certainly forgiving." Mm-hmm. Forgiving of what? What do you mean? Of the South. Mm-hmm. I mean, because many of those leaders were pardoned, they weren't hanged, because they were treasonous, mm-hmm. and that's what happens to... Yeah, imagine that shit tra- now, if people broke the country up, and they were like, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's and right. so I think that is, I think that was exactly the challenge. The challenge was that we never really confronted those issues, and really made people pay. Like, mm. you lost. But what I've always thought was, I've always thought that the South was allowed this illusion of fighting for every person in the country, for fighting for a version of America mm-hmm. that was actually more authentic and more real. Why do you than, call that an illusion? I think that was pretty much what they were doing. But no, but what I'm saying is they were allowed to hold on to that idea. The North allowed them that. So it's almost like, so imagine if you were in a relationship, mm-hmm. right? And your husband beats you, mm-hmm. you run away, and they bring you back, and then the the court says to you, just pretend your husband wasn't abusive. I mean, that's what that's essentially what happened. It's mm-hmm. like we reconciled and we never punished the North. We never punished the South. We never mm-hmm. said your ideas were egregious, horrendous. In some ways, we almost kind of said, we kind of get it. We see what you were fighting was, for. I feel like that, that whole weird. reconciliation was sort of like this. Now, now. now. <laughs> okay. Everyone had their tantrum. Let's move on. Let me tell you this. So I'm at an event. Mm-hmm. Perfectly in line with this conversation about statue. I'm at an event. This woman is positioning herself as a radical. She's a comedian. <laughs> 
radical, and she's a feminist. Mm -hmm. Talking about women's rights, all kinds of things. And then midway through her chatter, the the, um, Charlottesville comes up. Mm -hmm. And she says out loud. Dear God. She says, you know, we need to understand that it's these people's history. You know, their sons and daughters. This is a white woman? Yes. Okay. Sons and daughters died. She's like, women fought. Slaves fought. Um, you know, we can't. And I was like, <laughs> I turned to my sister. I looked at her. I was like, let's grab our bags. <laughs> but you know what was so Slaves fascinating? Slaves fought for slavery. What, what, whatever. Right? Let's discuss but, but, that. But you know what? You knew, can I tell you I knew it was going to go awry? Hmm. Why? Because Why? she starts the sentence with, Let's all acknowledge that slavery was bad. Okay. Whenever you start there, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, let's acknowledge that rape is bad. But, but you know what the thing is? You say something weird. like that, that is the beginning <laughs> and the end of the conversation. No. What more is there to say? It was Slavery was bad. Thank you for coming. Good night, everybody. There's <laughs> no, nothing else to say. Don't contextualize the funny thing evil. Is, 20 minutes earlier, she's busy telling me about Nazi Germany. And then she, so That's I want a parallel that I don't see why they don't connect. That. They don't connect that dot because I really, literally wanted to raise my hand and say, "Hey, Nazism was bad, but <laughs> hello, but oh, you let's can't say but that. let's think about how hot the Nazis were. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And what they represented, <laughs> and why can't we celebrate them? I mean, they really celebrated a certain type of look that I oh, like. Jesus Do you know what Christ. I mean? It was just so, or a certain ideology. Mm-hmm. But it was so interesting to me that she. But I think part of the problem, and I really do understand this, is like the brutality of slavery is never fully reconciled with. Like people don't understand what that was about. People don't understand rape, murder, pillage, ownership. Mm -hmm. It's intellectual for them. You know, I think sometimes, because I try to contrast it, you know, obviously we're not playing competing oppression here, Mm -hmm. but the murder... The murder of groups of people by the Nazis somehow is more salient than the enslavement well, of people you know over why. hundreds of years, right? It's because and so it feels Jews are different. white now. Listen, that's listen. what listen, that's clearly what it is because yeah. I mean we see this in everything from like f- from school to to big pharma. People just don't think of black people as having the same sort of. I know what we are judged as having less feelings. Yeah, we don't less, have emotions. We need less so like drugs. Six I mean, million all of that stuff. Jews being murdered. They're white now. I don't know what it was like at the time, but like six million Jews being murdered because of the pictures, it feels so much more visceral than when you see like the like all the carvings of like people being whipped and like the pictures of people's backs. It's sort of like, Whoa. well, there, because you know what it is, is like in some way, although I don't think of it that way. I mean, maybe it's because of the length of time, mm-hmm. you know, the swiftness with which it happened and the fact that you actually have numbers in that way. Whereas with slavery, it was a long period of time. And there's a sense, because part of what happens is there's a sense that the slave, 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 the enslaved colluded as well. Like, there's all this, this, this well, narrative what, around that's that. That's what racists want you to believe. Yeah, there's a narrative around our collusion, uh-huh. our, hand, our ancestors' collusion, which makes slavery complex, right? In a certain way. Uh, there are many different that, sides to slavery. Right? There are many different many sides. Di- there was many violence on many sides. many sides. And so I think that's why the discussion around monuments is so challenging, right? Because, first of all, it's a long period of time. And there, it's not shameful. But what I think is really fascinating, and it's this discussion about history and heritage, is that there is a version of Southern history that goes with monuments that were placed in the 1940s that's actually just a lie. Because it's also part of the myth of the genteel South Mm -hmm. and the cotillions and this and the that. 
that's what people want to maintain. That's what they want to revere. Mm-hmm. But that itself was a lie. And so, I mean, we have what's the, we have those women to thank for it. What's, it's not the Daughters of the American Revolution, but it was a similar group. The Daughters of the Confederacy. The Daughters of the Confederacy. These mm-hmm. were these white women who decided to sort of repackage sl- Civil War era Slavery as era as romantic, mm-hmm. when in actual fact, that's actually not what that's not what it was well, like. G- get ready, America, because this is the, I mean, this is the power of white supremacy, right? Because they're able to change history. But you so, can't change what happened. You, well, you, you can change you what can't. you think it is about, mm-hmm. and and they, that's what that's what white supremacy is about. It's about telling yourself a story um, that you then assume is true, even though even though there's letters up the wazoo. And there's all sorts and of pictures and contrary. evidence to the contrary. You know, uh, so you, I was debating making this. Question. I want to go back to the question, but I want to make this low-key media recommendation. Uh, I go to, I follow a site called racebaiter.com. That's oh. racebaiter. There's like grinder, so there's no E before the last <laughs> R. Um, and, I don't know if you're baiting like Rhett. <laughs> do it. And they just put like up a couple of days ago. It's an article. Apparently there's a black woman. Uh, I don't remember if she was a sociologist but it was sometime in like the 1920s that she interviewed a bunch of slaves and descendants of slaves, mm-hmm. former slaves and descendants of slaves. And just describing their experience, I got maybe two and a half paragraphs in. Like maybe. I, I don't think I could even read that. I had to skim most of it because the horrendousness of the stories like really crack through this sort of genteel South mm-hmm. like this. Oh, you know, oh, everyone's off to a fucking Umbrellas coming out. Yeah, like all that. Like, that. oh, lemonade. It really breaks through that. It was a vicious, terrible, terrible thing. So much so that, like, while they were so busy dehumanizing black people, it really makes me wonder, like, what kind of human beings the white people were For sure, back they, in the 19th. Like, was, I don't. The loss. The but hideous. Jefferson I mean, as, as bad that. as racists are today, as bad as all these people like out on the streets, like those people were not those people 150 years ago. I don't know what those human but, beings but were. But even Jefferson had to admit that towards the end of his life. I mean, remember? Oh, really? His, he had to come to Jesus? No, not to come to Jesus. It was his fear that he was going to have to have a reckoning with Jesus. Because he knew. <laughs> and Jesus was cracking his knuckles. I mean, he knew. <laughs> he knew that there was a stain. And they all knew. On some level. Did they? Even How in do their, you know? Even in their private letters, they admitted to it. Whether they publicly they acknowledged know? or did anything differently, their private letters suggest that it was a stain. It was a stain for them. And they knew that there was going to be a reckoning. But they kept doing it. Of course, because it's a cash. I mean, hello. <laughs> Cash is cake. All right, all right. We have to end this, but I want to go right back to the question. Let's just pick like Jefferson, right? Do we take down, is the value of Thomas Jefferson enough to leave up his monuments and his statues or not? Okay, let me tell you which monuments you keep. Okay. All monuments pre-1900. Pre-1900? Yeah. Why? Because those were real. What do, you- <laughs> <laughs> you, do you know? Do you know that these were actually like? I don't know if you know, uh. but they were cast off of the same mold, and so these are actually just like they're just like uh, assembly line monuments that were just, just designed in the 1940s. These Confederate ones, yeah, you're these talking Confederate about? ones. They're actually not even real. That's why they come down so easily, because they're actually prefab. I just thought there was shitty construction. No, that was it. <laughs> Prefab, they don't have this. They have the same look. They're not. They're not unique. They're not distinct. They're not. So they would just put up to send a message. They would just put up to send a message, which was Jim Crow. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, let's have a discussion about monuments that happened 1900s mm-hmm. in that era, 
But, you know, I actually think something, I will say that I thought, I recently went to the American, um, there's an American History Museum, um, the Revolutionary War Museum in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that museum really is a, a testament to the moment. And they talk about history in a, as an ongoing, as an ongoing struggle, as an on, and this notion of America as an idea in progress. I really sidebar. I really like the way Philadelphia handles yes, the history of the revolution. That's what I'm if saying. If you've never been to a museum in Philadelphia, please go because they are very even-handed is the wrong word. They're just very honest yes, about where whole, the country came there's from. There's a whole slavery yeah. section. There's and all, they don't shy away from it at all. They don't shy away from that. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, mm -hmm. I think if you're going to do monuments, do them well. Yeah. So don't sanitize Jefferson. Put up there, write all the wonderful things he did, but then also said, yes. say, say that he had a slave quarter. Contextualize and then these say people. that he had an 16-year-old, or I think she was even younger, Sally Hemmings was um, Sally. What yeah. was her last name? Yeah, I think it's Hemmings. Jennings. No, Hemmings. Hemmings. She Sally. was like thirteen years old, and she was imprisoned in this tiny room for his sexual proclivities. Disgusting. So you can do those things together because honestly, you could say that he obviously was a part of constructing this country, but then you can also point out those elements. Just don't sanitize that's, I think it. that's really hard. That's all that's I want. That's really hard for white people who have been told but that it would be these easier. people. No, but it would be easier in time because I think if you contextualize these people, then then the discussion lives. Yes. As opposed to just like Thomas Jefferson was a great man. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not the end of the conversation. I, just a little bit of further context about yeah. sort of um, villainy within your own population. Mm -hmm. I was listening to um, Pod Save Africa, mm -hmm. and actually they were talking about the Hutsi and the Tutsis, right? Mm -hmm. And I think part of the challenge we have in this country too is because we have a First Amendment right, right? In other countries, they don't have those elements. So they make it actually illegal to make those distinctions between people. That was a part of what came out of the Rwandan um, conflict mm -hmm. and genocide, was the decision that you can no longer refer to each other as Hutsis and Tutsis. It was, it was actually artificial anyway, yeah. but it's now illegal. And so just like it's illegal to do certain things in Germany, mm -hmm. you might we can't have that same discussion here because of our First Amendment right, free speech, right? Mm -hmm. But in those countries, you can't make those designations. If you say certain things, you could you will be arrested. So you because they understand that it is a road to so what are you saying other that? Are you suggesting a version of that here? What I'm I think the question becomes because in many ways this is what people talk about is what is protected speech? Are these monuments protected speech in some no. ways? No. No they're not. Well, but this is a question, right? That's bullshit though. Can well, we well, not can, I mean, do I have to subscribe to this and I, argue I, it cuz come I, on I, Trisha. I don't think you have to subscribe to it, but I'm just saying because we basically have a very, very wide bar. And in other places, they can just say this speech is illegal. Oh, my uh, God. You can't... I need a I'm whole sorry. other podcast to express <laughs> how stupid the idea that these monuments are. Come, come on. I'm, you know, rending this topic because now I'm mad. That's just dumb. <laughs> that... Listen, come. I it's not free speech. I, listen, I don't know what you want to call it, but it is a sort First of, of all, okay. It's a sort of speech. You know what? We're going to leave this here. Okay. <laughs> Before I call my first of all. I have I have like a three-point prong so to that. So where do you end? So where do we end on? Where do we round and end up your topic? I, I for me, I, I think I agree with every with, with what you said before. First of all, yes, tear down the monuments after 1900 because I didn't I didn't I wasn't aware that it was about Jim Pretty Crow. Bad. Um 
and also contextualize the monuments that we do have. If you want to leave up the monuments to Columbus, which actually not Columbus, because I think he's super problematic on every front, but if you want to leave up the monument to say Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or um, is it Ben Franklin? Not all, any of them. All any of them the had such fathers. problems. Probably except John Adams, because he was the only one that was rabid anti, anti-slavery. Yeah. But I'm just saying. But I'm sure he had his other problems that were sure. political. You know, I mean, the I, thing about I John think... Adams was that he was a... Um... <laughs> what? <laughs> he, he loved King George. Oh. That's what, oh, really? That's the irony of How'd they get Adams? him in that room, then, to sign that document? Because by the end... Because, listen, he wanted those people who um, who participated in the Boston Massacre to be to go to jail. John Adams is a really complicated figure. Uh, just to say, I read that damn book. I remember. Great. I saw but, someone reading that book. I was like, that's the one. <laughs> Trisha wrote a part of that book, uh, wrote uh, the questions in the back. And I saw someone reading it. I was like, ah. Uh, <laughs> no, that's really interesting. But uh, what, to end up, I would just say that if you contextualize these historical figures, yes, you can say that Thomas Jefferson was the father of the country, da, 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 and he was a slave owner, and this is what we know. And like other slave owners of the day, that – Slavery was brutal, and he raped this girl and blah, 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 yeah, yeah. and the rest of it. And I think that's really important because, one, it's like you said, it really fucking happened. happened. And, two, it doesn't actually take away from the value of what Thomas Jefferson did for the present day. Nope. You know, you know it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't take that away. So, yes, if you, if you think it's important to mention that Martin Luther King cheated on his wife – then mention it. And then whoever is viewing that monument or that historical plaque will have to weigh, th- I mean, weigh I think, in the moment. I, I think cheating on his wife isn't really part of it. But you know what? But you know he was a minister, so sure. But, the, but there you sure. go. If you, sure. if, if you want to weigh that against all the civil rights work that he did yeah. and have him come up wanting, Sally Hemings, that is her name. Yeah. And I think she was 14, actually. Of course. So we're, we're live young. Googling here. Yeah, she's disgusting. very young. Very disgusting. Uh, Ironically, died in Charlottesville, Virginia. Shut the fuck up. Yes, in 1835. Um, That's why that history is so important down there. Gross. So I wanted to talk about something that you had suggested in a text message about Insecure. Yes. I want to talk about this because, all right, listeners, Insecure is over for you, right? Uh, We still have the last episode to watch, so we haven't seen it yet. Um, uh, Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Spoilery, spoil, spoil, spoil. (laughs) Listen to something else. Last chance. Here we go. So the last episode we saw, we were seven episodes in, mm-hmm. and there's the uncomfortable dinner has happened, mm-hmm. and everyone said a lot of truth, and I was literally hidden underneath my couch. But, Trisha, you had you want to talk about dating and insecure, so set well, it up. Well, you know, I think my question is, um, I'm, first of all, let me preface it by saying I'm not a dater. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what that is. Um <laughs> to the 21st century. I don't know what that means. Nobody knows what it means anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, feel like, I feel like during periods of time in history when you had, when there were rules, like you show up, you pick someone up, you take them on a stroll, they are not allowed to be off on their own. I mean, that feels like something fairly concrete. Yeah. I don't really know what people are doing now. Just hanging out? I don't know. So what I wanted to do, but much like, much like things like, say, um, Sex in the City sort of define what dating and mm-hmm. kind of single life is mm-hmm. like. Um, whether it was actually telling us this reflect or reflecting some truth, mm-hmm. right? I'm I'm just curious whether you think insecure is telling us anything about dating 
anything about black dating? Is it anything about <laughs> singlehood? Yeah. Like, what are the things that, um, what are we learning about our lives through Insecure? Like, oh, my what's, God. What's being reflected through that show? Like, what's the show a medium for? That's I what I think, mean. first of all, I want to say this show is, I mean, this show is amazing. <laughs> I, I love, love it. I love, love it. her. I love her voice. I love the fact that you can go in any public space, ask any black person if they're watching Insecure, and immediately get down into like a really deep discussion as if of these are- Of a certain are, age. Of a certain age, yes. Deep discussion about who these people are as if they're real people, because I think for a lot of black people, we know people like this. Like we know people who are living these lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the show's really fascinating. Your comparison to Sex in the City, I think, is really apt. Because I, I just started watching Sex – I just started re-watching Sex in the City the other day because I, I miss it. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Like it was a tutorial. It was instructive mm-hmm. to single women in their 30s about how they could go about dating and interacting with men and interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know like any media – like any media is instructive. Some of the things that it said were good and some of the things that it said were really problematic – more so after the fact, and now that it's sort of set and done, it's it's stuck. It's stuck in time. It's an artifact that people can refer back to, and it will never get updated or corrected. Yeah. With Insecure, I think Issa Rae is telling a story about black people um, and black dating, but I feel like this show is less about sex and dating than Sex and the City was. Even though the characters are having a lot of sex, especially this season, and they're doing a lot of dating and whatever, I feel like the show is always primarily about these characters finding out who they are. Yes. And working out who they are. And this season, all three of the characters happen to be working out who they are through sex, sex acts, and sexual relationships. Yeah. And they're all dissatisfied. Yeah. They all can't figure it out because they're all trying to interact with sex in a way that like, their character doesn't really want to work through it. Lawrence is used as an object, which at first he thinks is really, really cool, but then later he feels really, really shitty about it. You know, Molly, this whole open relationship thing, I mean, we can spend a whole episode on that because I think that's fascinating. I think, okay, so, and then Issa trying to take control of her sex life by having a hotation. So, you know, the main character, she decides that after she breaks up with her boyfriend, that she's just going to have a hotation. She's just going to have several men on a list. <laughs> on a rotation. And, on, on a hotation, honey. <laughs> and when she's ready to get serviced, she'll select a man, have sex with him, and then put them back into rotation. Which is interesting because she spent five years with this one dude, too, where he was like not participating, but she was still in the relationship because that's the kind of girl that she is. So she's interacting with sex in this way. Um. But to answer your question, do I think it's telling us anything about dating? I'm like, I think, yeah. I think the conversation they're having around open relationships and they're constantly saying things like, oh, I thought there was only white white people. I think I think it's an interesting texture to talking about black people, black relationships, and black sex, which doesn't often get talked about in mainstream media outside of white people either desiring us or having weird fantasies about us. Well, I think one thing I thought was really um, surprising. I think people reacted really strongly to this. The there was a there's a there's an episode where she performs oral sex. Yes, I want to talk about that. And so the oral sex conversation. I mean, I did a little bit of reading around that, mm-hmm. and a lot of people really felt like it was dated. Yes, it was. That it was very '90s, and a lot. Of, first of all, there was there was sort of caricaturing 
oral sex is something that only others do. Yes. Only, and I mean by others, only whites do. Yes. Which is, feels like really stereotypical and odd. And off. And off. And right? off. And, and felt a little off. Let me tell you something. I had that conversation with my girlfriends 15 years ago. Yeah. All right. I've had that conversation with black women 15 years ago about uh, giving blowjobs. I, when I watched the episode, my first thought was like, oh, we're still – I didn't know black women were still hung up about this. Like, so but I was don't the price of doing the, business. I don't know if that's really the case. I mean, I think what was interesting to me – well, I thought to myself, well, I don't know if culturally we're, hang up, we're hung up on oral sex as we were maybe like in the 90s. Because that seemed to be the general reaction of mm-hmm. the people watching. Like, this is a thing people are doing? That still seem, doing. That still, still doing. doing. It doesn't it's... seem right. And it also doesn't seem right given the age of the kids. Given the age of the... The um, kids. I know. <laughs> Just revealed your I know. age. The ah! You revealed your age. I know. Given there. the age of the characters, <laughs> yeah. right? Because we've come through a generation of kids who are doing a lot of things. Also, the, gener- the generation strange. of people... The late twenty somethings on that show all grew up with the internet, which you and I did not. Exactly. So the fact that black women were like, "I'm squeamish about blowjobs," it's like, uh, what? Like, and it, and it, and I have to say honestly, it can't be real because I was in a room with older black women, mm-hmm. and that topic came up, and they're like, "No one's having that." Yeah, it was I, like a given that oral sex is a part of the menu of things that. If were those on the are table. women in their forties or late forties, yeah, I'd be like, oh, okay. But things are really different than they were 15, 20 years ago. That felt a little out of step. And so there's a kind of curiosity factor for me about what that was about. Mm -hmm. Whether that's like this notion that is just being propagated because it's a stereotype. Or is that a real lived experience for some of those writers? And it may very well be. It's really hard to say. But that was a really interesting I would love to see an interview with Issa Rae on that. Because like she she being a black woman and we can... I mean, we can talk about this too. She's not African American. Mm. She's not an African American. She she is an immigrant, or her parents are immigrants. Her parents are immigrants. Her parents are immigrants. So she yeah. didn't she didn't have an African American experience growing up. She is absolutely a black woman in America, and I'm not saying that the show is false or she's, you know, or no, that's she's, important though. That's yeah, an important distinction. It's an important distinction um, to to say that that her parents are from Africa. She was raised as an African person. Um, where was I going with that? My, where was I going with that? Yeah, well, why do you need to say that? Pause. Where was I going with that? Did you want to make a sort of ethnic distinction? Oh. So what I want to say is that I want to hear Issa Rae talk about that episode because I, I want to know if this is her actual lived experience or is this something she called about African-American women? Yeah, that felt like a researchy topic. Yeah, right? It felt – the scene itself felt kind of studied. Yeah. Like the things that they were saying and their interaction just felt kind of stilted. supposedly very good at it having gone – done it once. Yeah. Nobody's good at oral sex just – No, oral sex, it's – they call it a job for a reason. (laughs) It's not easy. (laughs) And and just – Yeah, You know, what happened for me was when I watched the episode and – I was like, why is she so upset? I couldn't really understand it until I began to think about the entire season is not necessarily about sex and sex acts, but just about evolution and control and trying mm-hmm. to find who you are. And she just felt disrespected by the end of the activity. In any case, um, I, I, I think for one, the value of it is that it opened up this conversation. I don't, you know, I think we don't talk about black sex and black love enough. Oh, for sure. I mean, and, I think that, and, even, and that's what I want to say. And even it, it opening, does. even opening this conversation, because every, 
I've seen so many black think pieces on blowjobs now because of that show. Yeah. And so the discussions being had or maybe rehad because like I said, like it was kind of news to me that black women aren't giving blow. Like again, that feels very, very dated, especially like a 28 year old black woman saying, yeah. Oh no, I never go down. What? Yeah. You never like, not even like I don't like to, but I never do it. Like that's yeah. not really a reality. If you're, well, you know, about. What, you know, what's also, in, what, you know, what also came out of the, the show, what? which I know they pushed back on, but I did have some problems with it. Mm. Um, the lack of condom use. I was I just talking say, about this this morning. I have to say that every single time I see them engage in sex and their failure to produce a condom, because the writers push back on that by saying, we just automatically assume that you know we're using condoms. I'm like, don't, that's lazy. I was like, first and foremost, that is just laziness. Because if you were, if it was another show and a quote unquote mainstream show, which we've challenged, because obviously I've worked in, um, I've worked around um, issues around these things for a long time, mm-hmm. work in nonprofits for a long time, and we talk about how media represents risky behavior. Mm-hmm. So we push them to show people not smoking or show people drinking an appropriate age. And it or, changes people's behavior. And it changes people's behavior. Mm-hmm. So we push folks to show condom usage. We push that. That's important. And okay. so so the fact that the writers wanted us to say, hey, we're not here to do this job, I was like, no. Laziness. And second, why can't you flip a condom up? You don't have to show and instruct someone using it, but you could put it on the side. And she, and so I thought that was, and it was, it was really funny because my sister and I were talking about it, and she's like, "Well, obviously they're using condoms. I'm assuming." But I'm like, why "Obviously." Would you, but why would you assume that? I'm like, people engage and in when risky they behavior on, all the time. That and, one scene was a single shot when Lawrence came in, yeah. ripped off her panties, <laughs> went to town. Which, by the way, I'm not a straight man, but I don't think vaginas work like that. I don't think you just right on in. Hello, I'm here. Like, I don't think that works that way. That looks like it would be painful. <laughs> there was no time for a condom. And that scene, first of all, like, the suddenness of it shocked me. Yeah. But the second thing that shocked me was, like, damn, they haven't seen each other in a while. <laughs> and there was no condom. <laughs> and, like, yeah. the whole reason he's not here is because she he's fucked someone else. And he's, and he's like, mm, yeah. I, I yeah, just, like. it was weird. That was weird. But, but okay. But this, oh, let's move away from Insecure for a second. I want to come back. But this is. This is one of my pet peeves, right? In California, a couple years ago, um, the state went after the porn industry. Yes. And said that they had to show the performers using condoms. Yep. uh, Which I thought at the time was ridiculous. Yeah, I know. You hated it. I don't like it. Porn is a fantasy. Yep. And in the fantasy, perhaps people are not using condoms. Just like... You know, when Tom Cruise, who insists on doing all his own stunts, which I want to talk about that in another podcast. Although Tom Cruise, like, does all his own stunts, in real life there's wires and parachutes and nets. But when the movie happens, there's none of that because it's a fantasy that he's jumping out of a plane and diving for whatever. I I just – so on one hand – but it's a, but insecure is not presenting a fantasy. Fine, that's the point. Well, um, it's presenting. It's it's supposedly a obviously it's so entertainment. It's, it's entertainment and it's altered reality. Mm-hmm. Whatever it's or reality magnified. Yeah. But the idea is that no one is unless you're in a committed relationship or whatever. Yeah. But we were the generation of kids reared on the idea that a condom. I I mean I know friends who've never even had sex. With Without a condom. condom. It's just been the thing that oh we've God. been instructed to do. Yeah. Right? And so the thing is, it was startling at my age to watch it. I was mm-hmm. like, where's the condom? Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, I was raised that no, it's, it's shocking because you're like, oh, oh, 
why is there a condom? You know, they go out of their way on some shows. Like, they'll show you, like, and teens getting hot and heavy, and he'll just, there'll be a shot of him, and he'll, like, hold the condom up and then go back down. Yeah, and you're like, okay. And you're like, oh, which they're also, using condoms. The, which also, by the way, logistically, she could have just used a condom and avoid the whole cum shot in the eye. But of course you wouldn't have gotten that shot. But I that mean, that was so funny. <laughs> that was so funny. We could not. If you haven't seen the show, you're probably not listening to this segment. This segment but anyway, I know you skipped but. right to recommendations. But uh, she gets shot in the face and then is shocked that the penis she had just had in her mouth had erupted in her face. I see the whole thing uh, is messed up. But I think, but let's go back to the central question was, the central question I asked was, what is it telling us about ourselves, right? And I think that's what's really important to me about the show, is that it's telling us about who we are using an intimate, using sex to really explore who we are as people. I mean, I've seen because we we've never done it. We've never done that. I think the only access I've ever had to this kind of space was maybe girlfriends. Oh, my girlfriends! God. I mean, that's a great show. I was just listening um, to Tracy low, Ellis Ross. I'm low like, key media recommendation. About, about girlfriends. Um, girlfriends. Yes, girlfriends, girlfriends. Although I don't know if you can even find it because um, it's not it's not running anywhere. No. But um, but yeah. So I mean, I think I think it's important that we are looking at black people in intimate spaces where it's not where we're not victimized, where we're sort of like independent beings, we're crafting and shaping our world. That's just not happening. I mean, that just doesn't normally happen. I think that's the value of the show, that's though. That's the value Is that it. it's less about, I know I said about Sex and City being instructive. I feel as if every space that I go into, which Insecure comes up with black people, it's a discussion about about what's going on on the show. Like and everyone norm, has yeah. opinions. Yeah. So in some ways... And I don't know if this is just a sign of the times because Sex and City was 15, 20 years ago or not. In some ways, it feels less instructive and more like discussion prompts. Yeah. I've been in so many conversations with black people about what's going on in the show and how it's going on and our opinions about it. And how it relates to who we are and yeah. what it says about us. And, and, who, and whose cousin is this person on the show <laughs> and whose cousin is that person on the show. <laughs> I love what it's doing. I love – there is – Every episode, there are at least like 15 articles that come across my timeline focusing on this, focusing. I can't tell you how many episodes. How many articles I read about that side chick that Lawrence had, the girl who worked at the bank? <laughs> yeah. Just about, I read so many really interesting articles just about her own motivations and what was she thinking and how does she, you know. The fact that she got to choose that she wanted to have a fuckboy or not have a fuckboy or change her mind in the middle of having a fuckboy, et cetera, et cetera. And it was or really... the idea that you could be a team member, like people who are Team Lawrence and yeah. what Lawrence represents and who he is and what, what that type of guy is. Yeah. Um, which I find, you know, I mean, because one of the things I've often thought was really intriguing is that you never really get to explore black male sex lives. Like, like, because Lawrence, unless is really... it's unless it's under the white gaze, you never do. Yeah, for sure, or any gaze. Like mm-hmm. it's external. But what's interesting about Lawrence is that he's on a journey as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because Lawrence, Lawrence is an interesting character because, in some ways, he reflects so many people. It's who you want to be versus who you think who you, you are, who you actually who you are, actually are who you can be. What's what, what, like in progress, um, and so, but it's a male. 
I mean, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the things people make fun of me because realistically, another one of the things I love are gay films, and people mm-hmm. are like, "Why do you love gay films so much?" Honey, because like, hot gay sex. No, um, oh, that's well, secondary. Oh, but oh, really, okay, why I like gay, f- why I like gay films is that most films that have men in them, mm-hmm. they have to one hundred percent be alpha, and that means that their their emotional lives are inaccessible to me. They have to be winning, dominating. Or doing, they're just not people. Mm-hmm. I don't know who they are. And even when they fall in love, they're they're not vulnerable on nope. screen. And so the only time that you see men, at least I see men as human beings, is in gay stories mm-hmm. because it 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 just rips them. I don't know. That's just that's well, it just, rips them out of the the ma- this toxic the masculine. toxic masculinity thing. Yeah. And so they're sort of unmasked romantically. They are allowed to feel. They're allowed to be in pain. They're allowed to have fears. All of that. Mm-hmm. Just think about every show that you've ever seen with a male lead. They're just entirely inaccessible as emotional beings. I don't know what, who those people are. I mean, well, you know, that's a nice up, fantasy, but growing up I don't as like, like a young gay boy, I remember looking at all the romantic leads in these movies mm-hmm. that these women were like dying to get at, and I was like, "Where's the? What's the attraction to these men? Oh, like, yes, they seem, do they even like? Her? Well, they're all daddies, like." <laughs> If you look at the shows like the 80s and like all those men were daddies, like they were just – they were your dad, mm-hmm. right? They had a lot of authority. Yeah. Um, in the 80s, all the men were wealthy. And when Pretty they, woman, the classic. Yeah. it's it, And when they weren't wealthy, they were still weirdly paternal – paternal – hello? Hello? <laughs> hello? Am I having a stroke? No. I smell toast. They were weirdly <laughs> – they were weirdly paternalistic. Yeah. Uh or abusive and aggressive. Think Overboard with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Tremendous. Even when, even <laughs> when she's rich and has a sort of power, she's cast this bitch who has to be tamed. Like it's Taming of the Shrew. Every uh, every romance is Taming but of so, the Shrew. But so many of them are, are like that. Uh, and I think what's, what's happening with Lawrence and Insecure is really great. Overall, I, I love this show as a discussion piece. I hope that – this is going to sound weird, but I hope it ends soon. I want another season or two out of this, and then I want her to move on and do more work. I, I do different things. To do but different you know things. what I find interesting mm-hmm. is that um, Issa's opened up in a, um, a space yes. because I think HBO is also doing a show about like an Indian lesbian or like an, a single Indian woman because you know I'm tired of the big sick shit. Mm-hmm. And so what I think is really <laughs> fascinating is um, it'd be really great to have. A show that was similarly cast with maybe Asians. I was just going to say they have a show about a single indie woman, but it's the Mindy Project, and she only dates white men. I mean, listen, (laughs) I'm not part of her character. I'm not taking anything away from from Mindy Kaling at all. No, she's she's great at whatever. And she broke ground. I get it. Whatever that thing she's doing. Um, But (laughs) whatever she's doing, Mindy, you've been dismissed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what I'm talking about is I'm talking about people who are rooted in the communities in which mm-hmm. they live, you know, and live and work and play and people who have extended families and people who whose families don't disappear, you know, off of the screen. And get that conversation <laughs> started for other communities. Yeah. I think the kind of similar to the similar Hello? Stop using words that you can't speak. Oh my god. <laughs> Versimilitude? Yes. Versimilitude. Is there an N in there? No. Versimilitude. So just do truthiness. Yeah, okay. So get the truth. Yeah, the kind of truthiness we're experiencing. I just dumbed the podcast down. (laughs) But I mean, I can't. 
because of this new stroke that I have, I can't say long words. Uh, but anyway, I, I'd just be great to have that for other communities. And I think Issa Rae opening up this space is so great. But much like Michaela Cole with chewing gum. Yes. Much like Brilliant. with that, first of all, did you know Michaela Cole? Okay, Chewing Gum is a show on Netflix about this young British girl trying to having a sexual awakening in like the council houses in London somewhere. And it's comedic and it's Wild. it's wildly it's if you haven't seen anything like it Michaela Cole she's such a gift to us all do you know she wrote every single word yes. of that yeah. that's why there's only a couple episodes I per season her on Twitter. it's cuz she wrote every single she's fucking great. word she's she great. is intense and i like that she's ending chewing gum yeah. because she's like i'm going to go do something else she did this thing she opened up this space she made this black female character Possible. which you've never seen anything like that before and now you will and now she's going to go on to something else so that's my wish for insecure is that like one, with with shows like this, you can't play are they or aren't they for too long yeah. because eventually they do. Yeah. And then it's Moonlighting and Who's the Boss and all those other shows Nobody that we cares. stopped watching. Five so, years and then yeah. move on to something Please else. move on, Issa Rae. Uh, keep it coming. So we're going to move on to media recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. And Trisha has a great one, so I'll let you go. Oh, my gosh. You're starting I set it up. Me? I set it up. Yeah. <laughs> I set it up. <laughs> so, I mean, I think um, I think in the spirit of recommending things where you are sort of visiting people in a new way, seeing, seeing us in a different way, mm-hmm. I think this connects all the dots that we've touched on today. Here we go. And I'm going to recommend Belle. Belle? Belle, Belle the Jane Austen-esque movie, Belle. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Say more. Wait, you've never seen Belle? No, I've never heard about this. I thought you were talking about Beauty and the Beast for a second. I was like, no, no I know you hate that movie. No, what are you talking no, about? No, 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 you've got to. There's a wonderful movie. It is, um, it's a movie called Belle, mm-hmm. and it's a film based on the true story of Dido Elizabeth Bell, the illegitimate daughter of a captain in the Royal Navy and an enslaved woman. When Jane Austen wrote this? No. Oh, no. okay. Um, like, when, what? Um, yeah, it's a wonderful, absolutely wonderful movie. But what I think is really great is that for, for say, for black women who are romantics at heart and mm-hmm. who grew up reading Jane Austen and watching Jane oh, Austen movies, okay, I see the you actually have an opportunity to see a black woman in that world. Mm-hmm. But I think what's really, I think what's so good is that this movie does that those movies one better. Because I actually believe the romance. Mm-hmm. Because there are risk involved for both characters in the romance. Both of them have to do something. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to, they have to take risks. They have to change their minds. They have to um, approach the world in a different way in order for the romance to succeed. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that rarely happens in a romance movie. So usually the person ends up with the lead or something by default or some weird thing. So it's actually and 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 and, it, and it's also an interesting discussion about slavery, because um, there's a really key plot point about um, a slave cargo that mm-hmm. gets um, destroyed at sea, and so they have to have this discussion about personhood, mm-hmm. right? But remember, the person who has to have the discussion. He has a he has a niece that's black, so he if he loves her. I've never. And this he is called Belle. Con- yes. I've ne- you, when did this come how, out? How I, have you missed I'm this like movie? watching you just describe this, and I was like, it's, I'm like, what? is she making this up no, as she goes along? You know I've never you know heard what's of this. Sad about this. It's what? like I don't. It's like you don't know me. That's one of my favorite movies. That's ever I don't know you. I I had wait. It's a fantastic movie. 
I wholly recommend it. And if you are like a Jane Austen person or any of those period pieces and you've always said to yourself, what would it be like if there was a if movie there was with a black, black person people in, in it? it? It's great. It's absolutely wonderful. And it's Belle. You can find it on IMDb. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it everywhere. It is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful movie. I and will. It is, it's, 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 it's beautiful. I will. I absolutely adore the movie. And, I will um, watch it. You should watch it, and you're going to be so upset with yourself that you that, didn't see it. And it was um, it was directed by Ama Asante. Mm-hmm. And Ama Asante, I'll be honest, Ama Asante has a certain theme that's in her movies. And you've seen um, her most re- recent movie was The United Kingdom, which is about that African man who fell in love with that white woman. Oh. And gave up his kingdom. Did that or come out? That whole, yeah, it came up. Or um, So... There's obviously a thematic strain to her movies, which mm-hmm. I think they're generally kind of interracial love stories. But okay. Belle is absolutely I'm adorable. I'm, I'm going to watch it ASAP, actually. Okay, you don't have to Oh, actually, you know what? I'll I'm in town. Let's watch it together. I'm in. I'm in. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, my, I, I have so many things. It's been a long summer. <laughs> I have so many things I want to recommend. So I'm going to cheat and just recommend a shit ton of stuff. Ready? Oh. I know. Sorry. Uh First of all, Wonder Woman. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was great. Yeah. I mean, because it's been a long time since we've spoken to you all. Uh, if you haven't seen Wonder Woman, what the fuck are you waiting for? Mm-hmm. It was great. Uh, it saved superhero movies. It saved DC superhero movies for me, you know, uh, for certain. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, what else? Um, on Broadway, there's a show called A Doll's House Part Two. Oh, yeah. Which, We're about to see that. Which Trish is going to see today. Uh, I've I've already seen it. It was phenomenal. It continues the doll the dollhouse story by uh, Henrik Ibsen, and the main character Nora had left her husband in Doll's House. Had left her husband at a in Norway at a time when women did not leave men because uh, marriage was sort of like a set thing that women could not escape from. But Nora does, and the this show posits that she comes back. And sort of the chaos that ensues and the discussions about marriage and divorce and personhood and women and men were really intriguing. I thought the show was phenomenal. The, the last thing I'll recommend, because I'm conscious that I'm over-recommending, is just last night I finished watching Netflix The Defenders. Now, listen, everybody. If superheroes aren't your thing, if you didn't see the Netflix show Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, if you didn't see any of that – then this will not be your jam. But if you did, it was probably the one of the better series of all of those series that I mentioned. It was action-packed. And the other thing, take note, American production companies, it was eight episodes long. That's all you need to tell a story. You do not need 12 to 20 episodes. Nobody wants to see all that shit. It was eight episodes long. It was tight. It was fun. That's my recommendation. See all those things. But see, how, see Doll's House quick because you have to fly to New York, first of all. <laughs> And then you have to see it because it's closing soon. Uh, if it's not already closed by the time you hear this. Oh, my gosh. So that was it. First episode back. That was fun. I have nothing left to say to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally done talking to you now. Nothing left to say. Uh, <laughs> You've had a very mediated summer. <laughs> I've had a very mediated summer. I've, I've Oh, man. I want to read more. I want to read more. I haven't really read much. I'm rereading things I've already read. I'm reading People's History of the United States again. Why? <gasps> you have to read. If you're reading books and you need a long-ass book. Yeah. Um, I don't know who needs one, but go warmth ahead. Warmth of 
a thousand sons you gotta read that book. i mean okay i that mean I, I don't is, really have much i just told Jem about it and it's I'm, absolutely amazing. i'm flirting with a bunch of books but i'm not actually reading well, if you're gonna read a people's history again you may as well read that i suggest another i'm gonna recommend four things uh read people's history again every time i read it i key in on something different i'm just saying it's a it's a dry history book but it's it's rich in oh, detail it's called warmth of other sons and if Skip that fucking thing and read Warmth of Other Sons. It's, That's... It's, it's Isabel Wilkerson, and it's really a fantastic story of the Great Migration. Okay. And, the, and the Great Migration is essentially black people leaving the South to come to the North. Well, I will read because it. guess what? When there are no jobs and you're scared, you move. Mm-hmm. Guess what, America? People leave <laughs> cities that, without work. People it's figure tricky. it out, people. It's, it's if you want to survive, you have to participate. <laughs> Before we get any further, we're going to say goodbye. Bye. We'll see. You'll hear us again in two weeks. For real this time. For real. Two weeks. Bye, everybody.